VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I would say a larger portion of people in AI think that this is a little bit like looking at the Wright Brothers flyer and saying, oh my God, this thing might go into orbit. To which the answer from the aircraft engineers would be, we don't know if it's theoretically possible to go into orbit. But presuming it is, it's not going to happen with canvas wings and two horsepower propeller engines. It would need to be some totally other thing. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Before we get into today's show, I have a request. Please press pause, take a moment and give a rating or even better, a review of this pod. Um, you know, it's Christmas. These ratings and reviews are really helpful in boosting us up the ratings and getting other people to find out about the show. So if you could take a moment, it's a giving season. Do that for me as a favor. That would be fantastic. But now, let's get to the show. You will have all heard of this by now. Chat GPT. It was released about a week ago by OpenAI. It's this chat bot and it has kind of blown people's minds. Here's a couple quotes just to give you a a kind of a flavor of what people are saying. This is Aaron Levy, who's the founder of Box. He said, quote, chat GPT is one of those rare moments in technology where you see a glimmer of how everything is going to be different going forward. Someone else simply said, quote, Google is done. Because of course you can ask this thing and it will give you the answer just in plain English to exactly what you're asking. Now, we're going to get into what that means because sometimes it's wrong, but it is still really impressive because it can write, you know, a pretty believable Seinfeld scene. It can tell jokes, write software code, pen an essay on Henry VIII. It does all of this instantly um, in response to just natural language prompts, you asking it a question. It is really impressive and it feels certainly a, a leap forward from things even like, you know, Siri, Alexa, etc. And there's been a huge amount of hype around what it might mean for really any number of industries. So for lack of a better word, it's kind of, it has marked a real moment uh, in tech, so to speak. And a lot of people predicting that we'll look back on the introduction of ChatGPT as really the start or kind of a bright line, a start of a new AI-driven era with huge implications for what it means to, you know, be human? What does work look like? What does creativity look like, etc.? Now, elements of those predictions may be true, but I think there is also a lot of kind of hand-wavy triumphalism around AI that clouds what this might actually turn out to look like. So to help me sort through all of that, I could think of no one better than Benedict Evans, formerly of Andreessen Horowitz. He's currently a kind of a roving free agent advisor, investor, thinker, writer of a very good tech newsletter. So do check that out, Benedict Evans. And he's just really good at separating the reality and the hype. So I brought him on to talk about whether this is indeed 
one of these truly historic moments, you know, like the introduction of Netscape, like the introduction of the iPhone, where after those moments, kind of everything changed. You know, what this technology actually is, its power, its potential, its limits, which is not getting a lot of press at the moment, and where we go from here. So if you want to download some smarts about this very buzzy, exciting, powerful technology, this is the pod for you. So without further ado, I give you Benedict Evans to talk about chat GPT and whether indeed we are entering a brave new world. Enjoy. So they released uh, chat GPT last Wednesday and they've already passed, you know, a million, million users. Two million a day later. Two million already. Wow. All running on a zip. It's on Microsoft. Yes, exactly. And I'm, I've seen that you've been playing around with it. I've been playing around with it. It is by turns really impressive and kind of like, you know, sophomoric, circular high school student prose. Um, and it seems to have caught the kind of attention of everybody of like, oh my goodness, this thing appears, one, to be smart. And even more interestingly, to appear creative which is interesting coming from a machine but if we could just start on a very basic level so shall i give the like what's machine learning what is this kind of correct yes like what because i think that's an important piece of this because i think it's kind of it appears to be one thing but it actually isn't necessarily that thing so let's start with like the elevator description of machine learning so there's a class of problem that is easy for people to describe, but hard for people to do, like calculating a million mortgages in your head. It's very easy to describe how you calculate a mortgage. You can't do it in your head. And so that was very easy to automate. And we automated that in the 60s and 70s. But there's also a kind of problem, which is the opposite. It's easy for people to do, but hard for people to describe. For example, tell me the difference between a cat and a dog. Yeah. You would think it's easy to describe that. And then you say so you describe, well, look at the tail and the eyes and it's got four legs and it's got fur like this and ears like that. And a year later, you've got 150 logical statements and it still doesn't quite work. And I think of this as a bit like trying to make a mechanical horse. Theoretically, you can make a mechanical horse, but in practice, kind of the, kind of the degree of complexity is completely impractical. And so there was a whole class of thing like translation, language recognition, image recognition that sort of always sort of theoretically worked, but never actually worked. Sorry, that was just a a beat in the background. That's cool. So then machine learning says, instead of making this a logic problem, let's make it a statistics problem. So you give it a million pictures in sample set A and a million pictures in sample set B, and you say, make a model that can tell the difference. And then you give it a picture and say, which one does it match? And set A is cats and cats, set B is dogs. But it doesn't have to know that. It just produces a statistical engine that can tell the difference. And this turned out to be incredibly powerful and generalized really quickly to all sorts of problems, not just images, but language and translation, but then lots of other things like sentiment analysis or fraud detection, or, you know, is there something weird on this phone call? Just a huge number of things where generally what you're doing is recognizing patterns. And a lot of things that it turned out to be useful for, people kind of hadn't realized that that might be a pattern recognition problem. And it turned out you could turn it into a pattern recognition problem. And so this has kind of been the last eight to 10 years of machine learning. Now, what these generative networks are doing in a very crude way is running that backwards. So you start by giving it a million pictures of a cat and a million pictures of a dog. 
But now you run it in reverse and you say, make me more pictures of dogs. And so it generates more images that would seem to be a good statistical match for your sample set of dogs. And the kind of crucial thing to understand here is that this is patterns. And so it doesn't actually have any sort of semantic structural understanding of what this thing is. It's just making something or recognizing something that seems to be a pattern kind of like that. Right. And that's important when you think about things like AI bias or AI ethics. But it's also important with these new things where you ask them to make something because they kind of, you ask it, you know, do me the chestburster scene from Alien in the style of Wes Anderson and it makes it. Yeah. But it doesn't know who Wes Anderson is and it doesn't know what aliens are or spaceships are. It doesn't even know what 3D space is. Yeah. It's just kind of making a pattern that looks like that pattern. Because it will have ingested kind of every Wes Anderson script and all of this stuff. Like I was thinking, I saw some examples where it was asked to write a Seinfeld script about, you know, Situation X. And it's like, you know, it's pretty good because it's taken probably every transcript of every Seinfeld episode. So it kind of knows what George would say or can suppose, you know, the statistical regularities that come from all of that corpus. You know, Jerry would probably say X and George would probably say Y. So the probably is useful here. And I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about here is comparing all the stuff around image generation that happened a couple of weeks ago with now the text generation, that we sort of perceive the accuracy differently. Mm. So if I ask you to make, you know, the chestburster scene from Alien in the style of Wes Anderson, I don't look at it and say, yeah, the table isn't quite right. I don't look at it and say, yeah, but that doesn't actually look quite like Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton had a mustache in that movie. Yeah. You know, you don't look at it and there's not like a binary, that's the right image and anything else is wrong. Whereas I asked it to make a bio of Benedict Evans. Mm. And, you know, I'm on the internet. There's lots of stuff that will come up in Google about me. And what it produced was a fairly generic, puffy bio of someone called Benedict Evans with some correct facts about me. So it says Benedict Evans is a world-renowned technology analyst. Um, yes, absolutely, absolutely true. So they've read they've read all of the bios you've got the, the things you've been speaking at or whatever, etc. Yeah. So they've seen all the bios of people who speak at technology conferences and seen well, what sort of things do they say? So it says world-renowned. Yep. It says highly sought after for opinions, and it's got some facts. So it says is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Well, no, I left Andreessen Horowitz three or four years ago. Yeah. And then it says, has started his own venture fund, Benedict Evans, LLC. Uh, no. <laughs> it actually said that. Yeah, yeah. It declaratively said, you have started Benedict Evans, LLC. Exactly. And then it says, I went to Oxford. Well, no, I went, I went to Cambridge. And it says, you know, is a highly successful author who's written a number of books about technology trends. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't written any books. I probably should. <laughs> um, but I haven't. And and so the, the thing to get here is, what does it mean to say this is wrong? Well, factually, clearly, there's a bunch of assertions of fact that aren't correct. But what it's doing here is making a pattern. Mm. And if you were to imagine what this is actually said is, make something that kind of looks like the kind of bio that somebody like Benedict Evans might have. Yeah. Then it's perfect. You have to understand, well, what is it that this is doing? It's making a pattern. 
And so where this gets dangerous is if you don't really understand what you're looking at and you think this is going to be producing something that's factually accurate, because sometimes it will. And sometimes, as you said, it will be sort of like, you know, a high school essay. So, you know, I studied yeah. history at university and I plugged a bunch of things I studied in history in. And you got anything from sort of B grade to D grade answers, depending. And again, that's sort of, um, well, what's in the collective consciousness of Wikipedia and all of the text on the Internet that's been fed into it. Bring back some patterns out of that that are roughly right. And that's a, that gets to the kind of the fluent bullshit problem quote unquote, right? Of just like, mm. there's no like, uh, I'm not quite sure, but I think it might be this. It's like, no, this is the answer. And I'm going to fulsomely declare it. And it might be completely wrong, such as Benedict Evans has started Benedict Evans LLC. It's like the, um, you know, the um, Morecambe Wise quote, you know, all the right notes, not necessarily in the right order. <laughs> the funny thing about, you know, the kind of music geek point about that sketch is that the actual piece they're playing doesn't go the way it's supposed to go anyway. Yeah. It doesn't start with a piano solo at all. So they've actually already written the piece for the purpose of the sketch, um, which is kind of a meta observation about that, that being wrong. But the point is, when you're looking at text, you have a very different sense of what's right and wrong. I mean, if I were to go to Stable Diffusion and say, make a portrait of Benedict Evans in the style of Egon Schiele, there's quite a wide envelope of possible responses to that that we would consider to be correct. Yeah. It kind of has to look like me, and it has to look like Egan Sheila. But there's not one answer to that. There's no way that it could be absolutely wrong unless it, you know, unless it looked like Picasso or something. But you know, there's a wide range of possible outcomes for that. Whereas in text, our perception is different. We don't think of this as being make something sort of like this that's sort of like that. We say, well, you said he went to Oxford and he went to Cambridge. Well, if you were to look at this from the other side, you could say that's a really good answer because what he's actually doing is saying, make a bio that sort of sounds like the kind of bios that people like Benedict kind of have. That's what it's done. Right, right, but we right. look at it and we think, yes, but he didn't go to Oxford. He went to Cambridge, or at least I, I think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's as much about like, what is it that, it, how do you understand what, what being wrong would be yeah. in this that's interesting? And if we step back, and I think I emailed you about this last week, you know, because there seems to be like, I'm sure you've seen the tweets from various people in the tech world being like, oh my God, this is one of those moments. This is like, you can squint your eyes and be like, glimpse the future, right? Where it's like, this is like uh, a Netscape moment. Or an iPhone moment, yeah. Or an iPhone moment, exactly where it's like, oh, wow. I would feel comfortable saying this feels as big a deal as the breakthrough in machine learning that happened in sort of 12, 13, 14. Which was, to, I can tell a picture of a cat from a blueberry muffin or whatever. Yes. And it, well, what it actually was, was it used to work sort of 50, 60% of the time. And in the space of two years, it went to working. And it had been like that for like 20 years. It had got 1% better every year. Yeah. And then in the space of about three years, so from like 1990 to 2010, it goes from working 40% of the time to working 50 or 60% of the time. And then from 2012 to 2015, it goes from working 60% of the time to working 98% of the time. It's like, vroom, suddenly. Right. And right. then it didn't just work for cats, it worked for voice recognition. And it works for driving. And it works for, you know, modeling the flow of air over an airfoil blade in a jet turbine. Like suddenly, oh my God, everything we've been, anyone in AI has ever been trying to do works. 
And so it does feel like there's another of those sort of, oh, my God, here's this very cool demo, but this is going to change a whole class of stuff that we couldn't do before and shift it forward. Now, that, in a sense, is kind of like Netscape in that there were web browsers before. It's like the iPhone, the, you know, there were smartphones before, but it sort of crystallizes everything into one moment. I think it is kind of interesting that there's more excitement about the text-based thing than the image-based thing. Yeah. Because somehow, that, which again comes back to the sense of perception, because it's kind of doing the same thing. But it's easier to see how it generalizes when it's text For sure. than when, it, when, you were doing it, when you were doing it with images. And so you get people saying, well, this can write code or this can write contracts, or this can write content marketing, or this can write a column. You know, it's your point, it's a fluent bullshitter. You know, it's a God's gift to columnists. And then you have to think, well, what is it that this does of itself for pictures and for text, and what does it mean? And then how does this generalize to other things? What does it mean for writing? Is this what spreadsheets did to accounting? Like suddenly, and of course, what actually happened is now you can have way more accountants because there's way more for them to do. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> there's a paradox from the 19th century, I can't remember what it is, which is, is when something gets cheaper, you don't you use more of it. Yes. When you get more efficient at doing something, that doesn't mean you use it less, it means you use it more. Yeah, it's like cheaper energy, you just use energy for more stuff. Well, that was actually literally the thing. It was people were worrying that Britain would run out of coal. And other people say, well, look, but we're getting way more efficient in how we use coal. And the economist comes along and says, yes, that would means we'll use more, not less, because it will get cheaper. And that's what spreadsheets obviously did with financial analysis, which may or may not be a good thing. It's what word processors did with, with creating text. So there's a sort of sense of, of like, what does it do for the creation of images, creation of movies, the creation of adult content, among other things, which is going to get pretty disturbing quite quickly because you can you can just type in, make me a video where people do this, and like, there it is. That will that will be a thing quite soon. Yeah, because I think it was Facebook, Meta, and Alphabet both kind of put out a video text to video generator in the last couple of months as well right yeah that will that's you know that's a year or two behind but that will come too so right right now make make me a picture where x happens is is, is now suddenly become trivial and the people running these systems have sort of tried to make it harder to do adult content but like that's not going to last because it's all open source everyone has access to it and so you know there is this sort of parallel of what, what did photography do um and you know, it's kind of interesting to me that sometimes people are sort of talking about this as though this is art well you know, I can buy the same camera that Henri Cartier-Bresson had, but I can't take those pictures. I mean, I can point the camera and press the button, but it's where you point the camera and which picture you choose. And the same thing with this. You know, yes, I can go and play with stable diffusion, but the people who have the creativity and the vision of what to make will still be the artists. And I will just type in, you know, make me a cool picture of X and I'll get it. But that's not the same. It's like me pointing my phone at the a landscape and taking a picture i'm not going to get the picture that ansel adams got because i'm i don't have that vision exactly well it's funny because our editor was like should this be a moment to examine what is there going to be left for humans to do you know it kind of like oftentimes when you have a, like a quote-unquote magical technology that kind of bursts onto the public consciousness like, oh my goodness this is going to change everything if now i can write quote-unquote write an essay by simply typing in a question and it generates a thousand words of decent gobbledygook. Oh, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for, you know, take home essays? Yeah. And be conscious that that will get better. Exactly. The gobbledygook and the repetitive language and the mistakes will go away. Um, so two, so maybe two or three different ways of looking at this. One of them is all this is doing is outputting what's in the training data. Yeah. So the only way it can create something new is if you think of something new to ask it. But the result from your new question will only ever be what's already in the system. 
it will be some reconfiguration or some remix of what's in there. So I think it's kind of, let's kind of go back a step. So DeepMind a couple of years ago made something called AlphaGo, which won the game of Go, which is much more complex than chess. And part of the way that it did this was just generating millions and millions of moves and testing them by playing against itself. And each move, of course, could have a score. And so then kind of expert Go players looked at this and said, my God, this is generating completely original and novel ways of playing the game that we would never have thought of. Hmm. But AlphaGo doesn't have any sense of originality. It's just testing moves. And so it tests moves. And here's this whole other category of moves that it gets to purely by kind of random operation. But because each move has a score, it can see, oh, this is a good move. So it takes it further. And presumably there's not infinity moves in AlphaGo. I mean, there's probably a mind-boggling amount, but you could probably test it to a degree that you can... Yeah, there is some bounded number of moves. Now, contrast this with the old saying about, you know, if you gave a million monkeys typewriters and they typed for a million years, you'd get the complete works of Shakespeare, which is kind of like Borges' infinite library, you know, just in, you know, an indefinite random arrangement of letters, you will get every book that's ever existed out of that, and you'll get a bunch of new books, and you'll get Shakespeare with a type with one letter changed, and Shakespeare with two letter changed, and so on. The issue is, of course, if you were, to, if you were to do that, you'd have no score. So you'd have whatever the number of texts was, and many of them in there would be new, or things that no human had written. And some of those would be things that we would consider to be wonderful, but they would be buried within billions and trillions of other things. And the system itself would have no way of knowing which ones people would like. Whereas with Go, because you had the score, it could tell which moves were good moves. Yep. So the challenge in these sorts of systems is you kind of need a human in the loop somewhere to tell you which is good and which isn't. And so, of course, the way ChatGPT3 and Stable Diffusion are working is they've got all this training data. You know, they've got all this data of all these images that people made or that people liked, or they've got all this text that people wrote and people thought this was good and people thought that was good. So like, all it's doing is looking at what it's been given and coming back with something. And so you know, Stable Diffusion could make something. ChatGPT could make something, but the only way you would know whether this was a you know brilliant flash of insight would be if people looked at it and said, oh, that's a, that's a really interesting idea. The system itself has no concept of interesting idea. It's just rearranging ideas that it found on the internet and spitting them back to you. And so that's a sort of a challenge to originality. So the originality comes from the person using it. I mean, you know, trivial example, you know, as I was playing with it over the weekend and I typed in, make me a country and Western song by somebody who made a lot of money in social media and now they think social media is destroying democracy but they're not giving the money back that's uh that's all totally believable except the country western part but like I, well there is actually a guy who has a country and western band who i do kind of have in mind so you know what is it i used to be a nobody just a small town boy but i made my fortune on the internet i had a knack from going viral i knew just what to say before i knew it i was living the american dream Oh, here's the chorus. The chorus. I made my money from social media, but now I see the harm it's done. It's tearing apart our democracy, but I'm not giving a single penny back. No, sir, not for me. Um, and it's like it's all, I'm reading it badly, but like yeah, it yeah, all rhymes yeah. and it all scans. If you then type in about something else, you'll see, oh, actually, I'm, I'm getting all the same kinds of patterns and the same kind of lyrics, just with a different word inserted. It doesn't have any concept of what that is. But the point is what you type in. So you've got, you've got this fantastic phrase, prompt engineering. Mm. which is what is it that you type in? Right. And so you've already seen this with these, the image systems where you'll see someone has this amazing image, 
and then they'll post what they typed in and it's 150 words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, not a, it's not sentences, it's this and not that and include this and emphasize that. Yeah, when I was playing around Dali, like the stuff it generated for me was not that great. But it was also like I was doing some relatively simple prompts. It wasn't like, you're, as you say, 150 words that gets down to like very detailed about what exactly you want. Yeah, it's both the idea and understanding how to manage it, understanding what will come out of it, right? what sort of things to poke and prompt it with. Just a little bit like, you know, why is it that that picture from August Sander is so much better than a picture I would take? Well, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> it's not about, you know, yeah, you could go and buy a Leica, but that's not going to produce the same answer. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It sounds like what you're saying, you know, especially this idea around prompt engineering. Is this where this goes that we, you know, humans are going to move more and more to kind of curation or curators as opposed to, you know, the kind of being the prime creators, so to speak. So one of the things I really like talking about here is the Billy Wilder film from 1960, The Apartment, in which Jack Lemmon plays a clerk in an insurance company in midtown Manhattan. And you have these great long shots of him on his, it is one person desk on this big open floor. And everyone has a typewriter and a Rolodex and a telephone and a giant electromechanical adding machine, which is like a kind of cross between a typewriter and a giant calculator. And basically everybody on the floor is a cell in a spreadsheet. And so, you know, he gets given a set of calculations and he runs them on his machine and he types the answers in his typewriter and he puts a piece of paper in an internal mail envelope and he gives it to the mailboy. He's basically a link. Yep. And the whole building is basically an Excel file. And those processes all got automated or aggregated into a mainframe in the 60s, like five, six, five to 10 years later, they bought a mainframe. And, you know, there's nobody in an insurance company who has a job like that anymore. And yet there were still lots of people working in office buildings in midtown Manhattan. Meanwhile, incidentally, the love interest, Shirley McLean, is an elevator attendant in that, you know, her, her entire job is she stands in the elevator and someone gets in and says, floor 10, floor 10, please. And she presses button 10. That's it. That's her job. Yep. So both of those jobs got automated away. And yet, I mean, it's like, you know, go back to like people talking about this in the 20s and 30s when people imagined like automation will mean like only 20% of people have a job. And everyone, no one else has to do any work. And of course, that's not what happens because human needs are infinite and we create new needs and we create new possibilities. You know, neither the job that I have now didn't exist 20 years ago. You know, the job that you have would have looked radically different 20 years ago and 40 years ago and 60 years ago. So sort of you have to presume in absence of a very strong argument to the contrary that certain kinds of things get automated away and other things emerge to fill that space. Now, the other way of looking at this is kind of completely counter argument is that what we've been doing is sort of gradually automating higher and higher level functions. 
So the Industrial Revolution basically automates muscle and automates human beings as kind of beasts of burden. I, mean, I always used to show people the, um, the Repin painting called um, Barge Haulers on the Volga, hmm. which is like 15 guys all leaning against a rope, literally men pulling a barge up the river. And that just on the horizon, you can see the smoke from the steamship. And so that's what the Industrial Revolution does. And then, you know, you, you machine to you get then you automate hands and then you automate like kind of really boring white collar jobs and you progressively automate more and more. And so there's a sort of an argument that you're moving up towards the top and you'll get to the top and there won't be anything that you can't automate. And that's, you know, what used to happen was the automated, the low level stuff and people just moved up. So there were no there were no more factory jobs. So people work in call centers. Well, you automate the call centers. So then what? So then there'll be graphic. So and progressively you automate and automate and automate. I think the problem with that is this sort of sense of infinite human needs that will just create new things. And this is a slightly different kind of tack on this, which I was, I've also been thinking about. And I think you and I have spoken about this kind of theme before. But this idea that you've had Dali, you've obviously had ChatGPT. Now these are both from OpenAI. You have like Cruise is now, um, you know, the driverless car company, 600,000 miles of autonomous driving in San Francisco, a very difficult environment. You had, and this is a bit further afield, but I think kind of part of a larger theme, Upside Foods just got approved to be the first FDA approved lab grown chicken in America. You're having a lot of these like pinch me breakthroughs and none of them are coming from the big tech companies. Now, obviously, there's a lot of innovation happening within those big machines, but those big machines now are kind of having this midlife crisis. They're doing some pretty big job cuts, and they're still kind of subsisting off their core innovation from 20 years ago. What do you think about this idea that there is this kind of like, it's it's this kind of, I remember talking to Mark Andreessen, like when I first got out here, and he was talking about the whole idea of Silicon Valley is that everybody's trying to kind of kill each other, including the big guys. And that this is kind of how it goes, especially, you know, from one generation to the next. And it does feel like a lot of people be like, see, Google should have done this five years ago or whatever. Why isn't, the, why isn't any of this stuff coming from Meta or Google or Apple or, I mean, it's kind of coming from Microsoft, at least they're kind of the infrastructure on this. But I just, what do you think about that idea of this kind of generational shift with these big, fat, old companies who are cash machines, but don't seem to be um, pushing the envelope? Well, there was, you know, the old joke is how many people work here? And the reply is about half. And that does kind of, that has people have applied that to Google. That's a very old joke. Yes, Um, yes. So, you know, OpenAI is running on Azure, you know, mm-hmm. it's running on, you know, pretty high level AI component and scaffolding and infrastructure built by Microsoft. Apple has just announced that they will have built in silicon and API support for stable diffusion in the next version of iOS. So it's not like they're not here. Cruise is doing one thing, but, you know, it's not like Waymo isn't deploying an awful lot of interesting stuff in autonomy as well. Meta released last week something that actually looked rather like ChatGPT and, you know, a slightly different angle on it. And they pulled it because, you know, again, this perception question, they launched this, this product that wrote plausible papers. And this was a UI problem and a presentation problem, not a technology problem, because it, people said, you're making this machine that makes fake papers, which is it's the same, exactly the same technology doing exactly the same thing as the, as the OpenAI thing. It's just perception was a little bit different. 
I mean, it is interesting the way voice assistants, which came out of the first wave of, of, of machine learning, like, oh my God, voice recognition actually works now. Voice assistants turn out not to be very useful. But those all came from Google and Amazon. That came from Amazon and then from Google and from Apple. I mean, I think there's a sort of a broader, there's maybe a broader point here is that there are, what, three or 4,000 companies started in Silicon Valley every year. And if you're not in tech and not in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, it would be easy to make the mistake of thinking that there's like five tech companies. This is what gets you to the phrase, the big techs, which is not a phrase anyone in tech uses. Because if you were to ask somebody in tech, what are the big techs? They would probably have a list of 20 companies. Like, why isn't Salesforce on that list? Yeah, why yeah. is it TSM? Where's TSMC? So there's a lot of people and clever people in Silicon Valley building stuff. And you know, on the one hand, you have OpenAI. On the other hand, you have Stable Diffusion, which is open source. And then you have Microsoft and Google and Amazon providing infrastructure for this to run and doing their own projects and Apple, you know, Apple pouring huge amounts of money into cars at the moment. So I think you can argue both sides of this, like not every new thing should come from those five companies. Well, of course not, but it's not like they're not doing anything new. You know, there's a sort of, you kind of step back from this and think like, you know, I can open photos on my iPhone and it's not even the Google one, it's the Apple one who are not really the AI leaders and type in a random word and I'll get a book I took a picture of 15 years ago. And like we've become used to that incredibly quickly. Yeah. Like 10 years ago, that was basically impossible. Now it's like, yeah, of course it does that. Yeah. And when we're talking about the big guys, the thing that a lot of people have immediately gone to is like, well, this is, this is the death knell for, for Google. Now, of course, I am sure Google, I mean, I know Google has been working on kind of natural language search or text-based search or whatever, something like this for years. But where do you see that going? Because it does feel like, you know, do we want a list of, you know, when you type in something to the little magic search box, a bunch of ads, and then, a, you know, a list of other potential answers, or do we just want the answer? So it's an interesting question. When you type in a query, is that a search or a question? Maybe that's a way of thinking about it. So sometimes I want to know, when did Shirley Temple die? Mm -hmm. Or I want to know what's a good flight to get to Schiphol next week? Or, you know, how do I get to Rotterdam? What's the nearest airport? And that's a question. But other times I might want, you know, where can I buy this coat? And that's a search. You know, what are good hotels in Lisbon? You know, that's not really a question. What I'm actually looking for is a manually career. I'm looking for some editorial. I'm looking for something that somebody wrote. And, you know, you might disagree with those examples or think of others. But the point is, sometimes the job to be done is I have a question. I want the answer to the question. Other times the job to be done is I want to buy a thing or I want to read a thing or I want to find a piece of research about a thing or whatever. So sometimes it's a search. And I suppose, you know, going back to the beginning of this, if you think of, you know, you know the internet is a library and Google is the librarian and knows where everything is. And sometimes you go and you say, you know, you just go and ask the librarian a question and they've read all the books and they tell you the answer. Sometimes uh, setting aside the chat GPT-3 problem that they might not have the right answer or they might make it up or they might not understand it. But there's always things where there's a choice and a question and the question is a link. Now, what chat GPT points to is answering questions. And it might be a better way of finding the link, but that's a, that would be a very different thing. What, it, what it's showing us is, you know, I want to know why British armies tended to beat Indian armies in the 18th and 19th century. That would have been a link to Wikipedia, probably. Now chat DPT3 will write an answer for me. It turns out the answer is mostly wrong. But that <laughs> can maybe get fixed, maybe not. Yeah. Um, 
But is that a search or is that a question? And I think that's the way I would sort of think about this, that, that the people who think this is going to kill Google seem to be thinking about Google in terms of something that answers questions for you. And I think that's only one portion. And I don't know how ad revenue and ad opportunities map against that. Yeah. And that idea, which you mentioned earlier, of moving up the stack, right, of going from replacing brawn to low-level stuff to increasingly going up the chain in terms of human capacity to do stuff. You sent me the the link to, I think it's called, um, what's it called? Catalog? Catalog. So could you just explain what catalog is? Because I think that kind of gets very much to the nub of why people are so excited about this is like, oh, you don't even need humans to write code. <laughs> and catalog is a startup that you guys have just invested in. It's a startup that some people I spend time with, Mosaic Ventures, have invested in. Yeah. So if you think about when you open Excel or PowerPoint or Word, you get this file new option and then they've got this long list of templates because Microsoft was kind of trying to help you rather than just giving you a grid of pixels. So we'll give you like an, a, a starter for making your mortgage or a starter for calculating you know, your, your holiday schedule or whatever it is. And so the same thing with all of these, they try and give you templates rather than just giving you like a blank screen and saying, go off and make your app. So the problem is either you've got no templates and you've got like a blank screen. Yep. Or you've got too many, or you've got too many templates and you can't find the one you want. And then you kind of, there's always this sort of sense of, do we outgrow this and just, just get Salesforce? Um, and so what these people are doing is saying, well, why don't you type into a natural language system mm. the kind of thing you want? And we will assemble that for you out of these components. And so they're actually using a GPT-like technology in order to create the app for you. And where before it might have been natural language, but all they ended up doing is trying to map it to one of the 150 templates they'd already built. This is actually making you an app. Wow. Using the components and the data types and so on that they have, it's assembling an app for you out of the tool that they have. And that doesn't look anything like, hey, make me a country western song where people sing about Boris Johnson and Brexit. Or, you know, make me an image of um, Top Gun as it might have been shot by Charlie Chaplin, you know, which are, those are kind of cool, cute, so what demos. Yeah. But the cool, cute, so what stuff isn't the point. It's, yes, but how does that generalize into other things? And so this is kind of, I think, an example of how it generalizes way beyond, which is also back to what we were talking about earlier, why people are talking about this as though it's a sort of a Netscape moment or an iPhone moment or an ImageNet moment. Because in this, with, with Catalog, you can say, I want to make a dating app for people who are really into fly fishing. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, or it would be like, you know, so I am running a business, I do speaking and I do consulting and I sell books. So make me an app that will let me track all of that. Or, you know, I'm running a bookshop um, and I have e-commerce and I run events and I have a loyalty scheme and I have a mailing list where I send out people list of books they might like, but I don't recommend books I know they've already bought. And it would like make that. Right. And so you just type that in natural language and it's like beep, 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 bop. Here you go. Yes. And it gets you something and you can go in and adjust it and play with it because it's, you know, it's a sort of a no code system. So the whole idea is you can change it, but it is that sort of intermediate point of creation. So what you're doing or doing here, in a sense, is automating, you know, either the owner's son or, you know, a contractor or something, somebody who'd spend your charge you five or 10 grand to sit and make it for you. Or, you know, hours of your time 
And of course, that's sort of self-selecting because there's only a certain kind of person who's actually going to spend the time to set that up or will understand how it might work and what could be possible for that. And so it, it kind of speaks to the kind of general point of what is what does it mean to say, create something based on what I say? What kinds of things? Which is a bit like saying, well, what is image recognition? And it's not just recognizing cats. Turns out image recognition is looking for anomalies in the casting of wind turbine blades. Turns out that's image recognition too. There's all sorts of stuff that didn't look like machine learning, didn't look like image recognition, didn't look like a pattern recognition problem that turned into that. There's going to be an all, sort, all sorts of stuff that doesn't look like something that you would make with generative ML. And it turns out actually you, you maybe you can turn that into a generative ML problem. And then lastly, kind of casting forward, going back to OpenAI, they've had chat, was it GPT-1, 2, 3, this is 3.5, I guess GPT-4 is coming out probably next year. And the parameters, the kind of weights and biases that kind of help create these answers have gone from not that many to more to, I think the last 175 billion to potentially 100 trillion or something. The idea is that this is just going to get better and better and better and better, right? It doesn't appear, at least in the near term, there's huge limits onto how good this stuff can get or how accurate or how lifelike some of these answers could get. Well, there's a couple of axes here. One of them is is how much data, which is what you're actually doing, is just throwing way more data in and then way more com- compute to process the data. And I saw a paper this week which said, well, how much data is there, like actually in total, as opposed to how much, like in the world? Yeah. And it turns out that like we're within like an order of magnitude of running out of data. Hmm. Presume now, of course, what will actually happen is we'll create more data and, you know, the models will get much more efficient and so on. But we are like, just to give you a sense of scale, like these models are conceptually not very far away from being fed all the data that there actually is. They're running out of training data. Yeah, like they're running out of books. They're running out of like all the interdata <laughs> that there is in the world. So that's kind of an interesting, interesting intellectual challenge. There is a, you know, to go kind of very high level, this, all of this sort of gets back to the, and to pick up on something we were talking about earlier, this is still automation and it's still a machine and it doesn't know what anything is. And the holy grail of AI research is to make something that has what's called general intelligence in the sense that not just what people have, but like what a dog has. You know, you can put a dog in a new situation and it will not react like a machine. It will go, what the hell is this? And try and work it out. And by extension, you know, you could imagine an alien intelligence that was further along the scale from us and looked at us the way we look at dogs. But the point is, none of these things are general intelligence. They're like a washing machine. You know, you put plates in a washing machine and press go, it'll wash them. It doesn't know. None of these things know what clothes are in that, to continue the analogy. And so the holy grail is you make something that has generalized intelligence that actually expands beyond these kinds of limitations. Now, holy grail is a good phrase to use here because, of course, the holy grail doesn't exist. Um, and there's, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a kind of an active and lively discussion amongst AI researchers in which a small number of relatively small portion of AI researchers, including it has to be said some of the people at OpenAI and Demis Sibis at DeepMind, kind of think that if we scale this stuff for another five or 10 years, we yeah. actually might get general AI, just more compute, more power, more data. We might get something that actually could do that. And then, of course, the concern is, well, it will just accelerate exponentially and you know, we'll have something a billion times cleverer than us five years later, and then we've got a problem, um, or at least an interesting debate. I would say a larger portion of people in AI think that this is a little bit like looking at a Sopwith camel or a Wright Brothers flyer and saying, oh my God, this thing might go into orbit 
To which the answer from the aircraft engineers would be, we don't know if it's theoretically possible to go into orbit. But presuming it is, it's not going to happen with canvas wings and two horsepower propeller engines. It would need to be some totally other thing. Right. And most people in AI, I think, are still saying or are saying, this will not take us to general AI. We would need an unknown number of unknown theoretical breakthroughs occurring unknown times in the future. And we don't know when or how or what that would look like. So don't worry about it. Because ultimately, going back to where we started, this is not, though it appears creative, which is why I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, this is a thing. It is not creative. It's basically pulling patterns out of huge amounts of data and being like, well, this is probably how this would go. It's a math equation. So think about databases. If you go back and look at something like From or all those computer movies from the 70s, 80s or scanners, all those kind of movies, people looked at databases and thought that this was general AI. They kind of looked at this and thought this was intelligence. Yeah. And now, you know, you swipe your access card to get into a building. You don't say, I'm using some artificial intelligence. Maybe the building <laughs> will notice. And maybe what happens if the building doesn't like me? Yeah. It might not let me in. You know, like I use, I swipe my access card and then I go buy chocolate and it breaks and I kick the machines. The building says, oh, we don't like Danny. We're not going to let him in the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's absurd. But people were kind of thinking about databases kind of like that. And I think the default view here is it, it, this is a, it's a sort of a category error of not really understanding what it is that you're looking at. Yeah. And this is the same thing, of course, that happens in the 20s and 30s with like production lines and machine tools. And people start making kind of steel robots. Like, well, you can make a steel robot that walks around, sort of, but there's nothing inside there. There's just a guy with a juice, with an accelerator and a brake. Yeah. You know, there's no there there. It is still just the Wizard of Oz. There's just a guy behind the curtain, you know, pulling levers and shouting into a microphone. And I think that's sort of the default view of all of this stuff. You know, it is like looking at a pocket calculator and saying, my God, this can do mass incredibly fast. What would happen if it started writing? Well, yeah, it's a calculator. It doesn't even know what mass is. Never mind writing. It's just it's just running some calculations. Yeah. But to your point, moving away from that existential question, to a degree, almost that doesn't matter. What we're really talking about here is just a new powerful machine or a new powerful interface that's going to unlock new possibilities to do things that you couldn't do before, which is in itself quite disruptive. It will. I mean, I don't know how much of your audience is in the UK, but this stuff always reminds me of the post office scandal in the UK, mm -hmm. where just, you know, to, to recap, like, was it 20 years ago, the UK post office deployed a new point of sale system to all of their retail outlets and the retail outlets are all independent. Yep. And the point of sale system had bugs that showed shortfall of cash. And the post office decided that the shopkeepers, postmasters were stealing the money and started prosecuting them and sending people to prison and people went bankrupt. Some people killed themselves. Yeah. And the post office knew there were bugs in the system. They knew and they lied to court. They went to court and said, there's no bugs. Hmm. And that's just a database. That's 1970s technology. Yeah. It's like the joke that, you know, the tax office has misspelled your name and it's easier to change your name than to persuade them that you're wrong. Or like, you know, somebody called Muhammad Ali who discovers her on a, on a no fly list. It's like there were quite a lot of people in the world called Muhammad Ali. This is a human problem and an institutional question. It's not a technology question. Fascinating. Well, look, as ever, it's always super helpful. It's great to get your perspective on this. But yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting times. And I think like, as you say, the catalog example, I think is really interesting. It's kind of one of these examples that goes beyond the kind of like the toy, 
that everybody's playing with right now and actually shows kind of how this actually could be used. It's beyond the cool demo. What is that actually useful for? And the answer is way more than the demo. And that was all the time we have. I want to thank Benedict as ever. He's kind of a Danny in the Valley OG. He's been on, I don't know how many times now, three, four times, something like five maybe. Who knows over the years. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank you again for those ratings, for the reviews, for you know sharing the Danny in the Valley cheer with your friends and neighbors. Like I said, every little helps. And that is it for me this week. I wrote about ChatGPT last week. I might be writing about it again. Who knows? The week is young. But uh, do check out thetimes.co.uk. I'll be writing about a whole bunch of stuff also around crypto and kind of this moment in Silicon Valley broadly. So lots to check out there. Also, you can find me, of course, on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks as ever for listening and have a fabulous week. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.